Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Our goal, as always, is to help you understand the literal sense of scripture. What do the words mean in their original context? What was the author trying to communicate to his audience? And so we're looking at the gospel reading from today's Mass, which is from Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he remained there for forty days, and was tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels looked after him. After John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. There he proclaimed the good news from God. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So let's start by thinking about the context here. So just prior to this, Jesus has been baptised. And now we get to verse 12, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Notice that Jesus doesn't do this on his own initiative. The Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. So it's the Holy Spirit that he's just been anointed with in his baptism, and it sends him out into the wilderness. Now the wilderness, or some translations have this as the desert, we don't know exactly where this is. It's probably in the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea, so he probably just wandered off from after having after his baptism, just wandered straight out into the desert. There is a big desert area out there. And the wilderness or the desert was depicted in the Old Testament as the realm of evil powers. So it's not an accident that he goes to the desert. To to the Jews, the desert was largely the place of the devil, the place of the evil powers. It was often symbolized by the kind of evil beasts that lived there. So if you look at Leviticus verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 10, and Isaiah chapter 35, verses 7 to 9. They both talk about the desert being the place of evil beasts. So to Mark's original audience, when they hear that Jesus is going out into the wilderness, they're probably thinking he's going out into Satan's territory deliberately, which is certainly the case. Verse 13, he remained there for 40 days. Jesus almost certainly is staying in the wilderness for 40 days deliberately. He's choosing to stay there for exactly 40 days. Why? Well, he's choosing to recapitulate the history of Israel in himself. That's one of the key elements of the gospel that we often forget. Jesus does certain things in his life that deliberately uh, re-image and recapitulate the history of Israel because he has come to be the fullness of Israel, to be their savior, which means he has to experience the things that they experienced. So we know that, for example, the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years And Moses went up the mountain for 40 days, and while the rest of the Israelites waited in the wilderness. So this theme of 40 days was very prominent in the Old Testament, and Jesus is recapitulating that theme of 40 days, just as Israel is often tempted in the wilderness, often for a period of 40 days, Jesus does the same thing. And while he's out there, Mark says he's tempted by Satan. Now, the word Satan just means adversary. It's the same person as the devil. This is one of the names given for the devil. Now, the gospel authors all present Satan as a real individual. Sometimes you'll hear people say it's just like a general term for the embodiment of evil or something. But the gospel authors clearly understand him to be a real person, a real individual. And the demons are real individuals as well. Satan, according to the Jews, is an immaterial being who can see much of what is going on in the world. And in this case, he sees Jesus out in the wilderness. Now, it's not clear what form the devil takes here. We don't know what the devil looks like in this scene. We're not told. 
This leads us to a lot of interesting questions and some interesting discussions about what happens here in the temptation. So first thing to consider, how much does the devil know? Does the devil know who Jesus really is? It's almost certain that he knows that Jesus is the son of God because the demons themselves know this elsewhere in the gospels. And they seem genuinely surprised when Jesus shows up. So it's likely that Satan and his minions do recognize that Jesus is the son of God. Now, some people dispute that because in the other Gospels, where it's talking about this scene, one of the things that Satan says to Jesus out in the desert is, if you are the son of God, then do this. But I think that can still be understood as something like, since you are the son of God, do this. That is a legitimate understanding. So I think the best way to think about this is Satan knows that Jesus is the son of God. And he also seems to know that Jesus is going to play a pivotal role in turning people back to God. He knows that if Jesus is successful... And if Jesus continues to obey God, he is going to bring a lot of people back into the kingdom. But it seems that Satan doesn't know exactly how Jesus is going to do this. Particularly, he doesn't understand the implications of Jesus' death. When Jesus dies on the cross, Satan thinks that he's won. That, yea, the Son of God is dead and he can sit back and relax. But in fact, we know that Jesus' death accomplished Satan's own defeat. And Satan did not see that coming. So Satan has a partial understanding, but he certainly knows more than what most of Jesus' contemporaries do. So at this point, Jesus is in the desert and Satan sees that Jesus is at his weakest. And he figures, Satan is probably thinking that if he, if he can get Jesus to fall into temptation and stop trusting God at this early point, then Jesus' whole mission will fail. Satan does not want the kingdom of God to come. He wants to stay in control of the world and he doesn't want people to come into the kingdom of God. So he figures, I'll deal with Jesus now and get him out of the way by tempting him and getting him to give in to Satan rather than to keep trusting God. Now, in Mark's version, we don't find out what the temptations are. They're given in more detail by Matthew and Luke in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. But certainly we should understand these temptations as real temptations or real tests if we believe that Jesus really accomplished something here, then we have to believe that he really is genuinely tempted. Some part of Jesus' humanity must have desired the things that Satan tries to put in front of him. There's another aspect of this, though, which is that Jesus probably went out to the wilderness deliberately to be tempted by Satan. He went out there knowing that Satan was going to come and try to tempt him. Jesus went out to Satan's own territory, the wilderness. So it's almost like Jesus is looking for a fight. He's deliberately going out there to confront Satan. Why? Well, there's probably various reasons why Jesus confronts Satan head on early on. Certainly, Jesus is recapitulating the journey of Israel in himself. And we know that there was a period where Israel was tempted in the wilderness before they could inherit the promised land. Israel failed a lot of those temptations, but Jesus is going to pass all of them. So he's going to succeed where Israel failed. In fact, you could also take it further. You can say that Jesus is succeeding where Adam failed. Jesus, uh, Adam was tempted in the garden by Satan. And here, Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Adam failed, but Jesus succeeds. And what's interesting about this, and some of the church fathers talk about this, it's like Jesus chooses to only use his human nature in this particular fight against Satan. And the church fathers talk about this as like, Jesus deliberately tying his own right hand, like his divine hand, tying that away and only using his left hand, his humanity, to fight Satan, which is a really powerful image, actually, of 
how Jesus is the second Adam. He's the man, the, the second great man who has come to redeem all men, only using his human nature here. He could have used his divine nature and just zapped Satan or something, but it seems that Jesus here is deliberately just using his human nature in this engagement with Satan. So there's obviously a lot of interesting spiritual stuff going on here in this confrontation. Now, this initiates an extended campaign of Jesus fighting against the forces of darkness in the rest of the gospel. Jesus confronts Satan here, and that confrontation will continue to play out in the gospel. Now, Mark here says that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Why does Mark say that? Well, he's probably including this to recall the prophecies that at the coming of the Messiah, the Old Testament says at the coming of the Messiah, wild beasts would be tamed. This is in Isaiah 11. It's in Ezekiel 34 as well. And some scholars have suggested that maybe Mark is doing more than this. Maybe Mark is suggesting, he's mentioning wild beasts here in order to draw another parallel with Adam. Jesus was tempted by Satan here among animals, just as Adam was tempted in the garden among animals. Now that's a bit more speculative, but it is interesting. And then Mark says here, the angels looked after him. So since Jesus is the Messiah and he has a mission to accomplish... God ensures that he is protected until his mission is accomplished. So he sends the angels to look after him. We know, of course, that Jesus is quite weak at this point. He's been fasting and the angels continue to sustain him, even despite his fasting and his temptations. We don't know exactly what this looked like. We don't know how the angels appeared to him and how exactly they helped him. They probably helped him recover from the whole desert experience. Maybe they helped him find food. Maybe they helped him return to civilization when it was all over. We're not sure. We do know, though, that the angels have fed people on other occasions, such as Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And the Catechism talks here about how the angels show up at various times in Jesus' life to ensure that he's able to fulfill his mission as Messiah. So that's the end of Mark's version of the wilderness temptations. And then in verse 14, it says, After the arrest of John. It's talking about the arrest of John the Baptist. We don't, at this stage, we don't find out why John the Baptist was arrested. But later in chapter 6 of Mark, we do get some more information there. So after John has been arrested, it says Jesus went into Galilee. So the end of John's public ministry signals the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, And in in a sense, Jesus is continuing the ministry that John the Baptist began of proclaiming the kingdom of God. Some scholars even think that Jesus was a disciple of John the Baptist, which is possible because we know that if you look at the Gospel of John in the early chapters, Jesus is hanging around the River Jordan for quite a while, at least a few days anyway, before he's baptized, which might indicate that he is a disciple of John. And so some scholars think that the fact that Mark chapter 1 here says after John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, some Some people have detected an element of fleeing here, as in John the Baptist was arrested, and now Jesus has said, I'm one of his followers, I'm in danger of being arrested, I need to go somewhere else. So that's possible. Um, I'm just putting that out there so you know that some scholars have suggested that. So Jesus goes into Galilee. At this point in the narrative, he's been in the Judean wilderness where he's been tempted by the devil. The devil. That's what's just been described in the Gospel of Mark. So now he's going back to Galilee. So it's a 160 kilometer trip or 34 hours of walking. So probably a few days walk 
for him to get from the Judean wilderness back up to Galilee in the north of Israel. By the way, I think it's often good. I have a map of Israel on the wall in front of me so that I can get these things clear in my mind. Sometimes we lose the geography of how far away things are and where they're situated in Israel. It doesn't seem as important to us, but remember to a first century reader who uh, marks original audience, they would have known straight away, oh, yep, Nazareth is this far from Bethlehem, etc. So it's good for us to discuss those things as well when we're looking at the literal sense of the text. So we know from the Gospel of Matthew that after Jesus comes out of the desert, which is now, he actually goes to Nazareth Nazareth first briefly. That's his family home. He says goodbye to his family and he no longer lives in Nazareth from there. He actually moves to Capernaum. So this is the point at which, or Capernaum, depending on how you pronounce it, the point at which Jesus begins his ministry. He moves to Cap- Capernaum, sets up a base there and starts to proclaim the good news from God. Or another translation there would be proclaiming the gospel of God. Whenever you see that good news in the New Testament, it's the same as gospel. So in that culture, the word gospel was used was actually used not in relation to Christian things. It was used in relation to Roman governors. So put yourself in the shoes of Mark's readers. They're used to hearing the word gospel, and so they have a good idea of what the word gospel means, but in a different context. So the context that they're familiar with the word gospel is in terms of Roman thinking. So when there was a significant development in Rome, or there was a new king or a governor that had been appointed in Rome, Rome would send a messenger to Judea or to Israel to declare the good news about the king to the people. So the messenger would come into Israel and say, good news, there is a new king, all hail the king, something along those lines. So this is the meaning the gospel authors have in mind. So it's a proclamation of the good news that there's a new king. But the gospel authors, of course, are referring to King Jesus. So the gospel or the good news is that a new kingship has begun. A new spiritual kingdom has now arrived for the Jews. And that's what the gospel authors are trying to communicate to their Jewish audiences. So gospel was not a word that was invented by the gospel writers uh, gospel was a well-known word in this culture. It's just it's being applied now to the message of Jesus, and particularly the kingdom of God. So Mark here is summarizing that Jesus went around preaching in many towns of Galilee. So when it says here Jesus preached in Galilee, he's actually shortening a long time period and just summarizing it by saying, uh, The kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So that's a summary of Jesus' teaching. Let's pull that phrase apart a bit. The time has come, Jesus said, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. So when it says the time has come or the time is fulfilled, as another translation says, what it's saying is that now is the time when God will break through into history to fulfill his promises. This is the time the Jews have been waiting for. It's the beginning of the new and final stage in salvation history, which had also been come, uh, come to be known as the kingdom of God. So the Jews were waiting for the kingdom of God, and Jesus is now saying, it's here. The time period you're waiting for has now arrived. So the Jews did believe that the kingdom of God was coming because the Old Testament predicts that there would be a kingdom of God. But they had some slightly different ideas. The 
the core idea of the kingdom of God as Jesus presents it, and, and there's a lot to the kingdom of God as Jesus presents it, but the core idea is... Well, let's go back a step. What, what did the Jews think the kingdom of God was? In a nutshell, the Jews thought the kingdom of God was the time when God would establish his will and his reign on earth. So that's the core idea the Jews had. Jesus comes along and basically says, yes, that's right, but the kingdom of God is not exactly as you Jews expect. In fact, the kingdom of God has arrived now through me, the Messiah. And through his ministry, he constantly clashes with the Pharisees who have some partially correct ideas about what the kingdom of God is going to be like, and then Jesus has to correct them on multiple points. If you've never done a study on the theology of the kingdom of God, it's well worth it because that's Jesus' main preaching. It's the kingdom of God, the reign of God. And Jesus here says it's at hand. That phrase at hand suggests both a present and a future reality, kind of like the sunrise on the horizon. It's beginning, but it's yet to see its full flourishing. And that's, of course, what Christians believe about the kingdom of God. Jesus began the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom of God now, and it will reach its consummation at the end of time. Jesus says, as part of his message, repent and believe the gospel. And, of course, a lot of you would know repent means you have to do a 180 and go back the other way. That's what the word means. So Jesus... Notice this, Jesus says that these are the requirements to be part of the kingdom of God. You need to repent and believe the gospel. So John the Baptist had preached the repent part, so a lot of the people at this time would have been familiar with that. And now Jesus is adding a second part, which is believe. Believe the gospel, believe the good news. So probably what that means is Jesus is asking his his hearers, to trustingly accept and yield to what God is doing in him as the Messiah, which makes sense because in his ministry, the people who accepted that God was working through the Messiah were the ones that tended to become Christians. The ones that couldn't accept that God was working through Jesus were the ones that ended up not coming into the kingdom. So Jesus here is saying, you need to repent and believe that God is working through me as the Messiah. Those are the prerequisites to get into the kingdom. So that is the end of our text for today. You can hear the next section of text on Monday of week one of Ordinary Time. So it's the very first weekday reading in Ordinary Time. Picks up where we got up to today. So you might like to look through the podcast archives to find that next section of text. Now, what does the Catholic Church teach in, in relation to this passage? Or how, can we, what, how has the Church developed teachings from this passage? So let's start at paragraph 333 of the Catechism. This is about how Jesus uh, is surrounded by angels during his life and how they minister to him. From the incarnation to the ascension, the life of the word incarnate is surrounded by the adoration and service of angels. When God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Their song of praise at the birth of Christ has not ceased resounding in the church's praise. Glory to God in the highest. They protect Jesus in his infancy, serve him in the desert, strengthen him in his agony in the garden, when he could have been saved by them from the hands of his enemies, as Israel had been. Again, it is the angels who evangelize by proclaiming the good news of Christ's incarnation and resurrection. 
they will be present at Christ's return, which they will announce to serve at his judgment. So that's a nice summary of all the places where the angels appear in Jesus' ministry, and in particular here today, they serve him in the desert. Let's go to paragraph 541. There's a discussion there about the kingdom of God, and it's quite an important paragraph. Here is what it says. And in fact, as you'll see here, it actually quotes the very passage from Mark that we just read. Paragraph 541. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. To carry out the will of the Father, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now the Father's will is to raise up men to share in his own divine life. He does this by gathering men around his Son, Jesus Christ. This gathering is the church, on earth the seed and beginning of that kingdom. So here in this paragraph, the Catholic Church tells us that this passage from Mark chapter 1 is really important in telling us what Jesus' mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in fact, the church today is a manifestation of that kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching here in Mark chapter 1. In paragraph 1423, which is about uh, in the section about reconciliation, it says, It is called the sacrament of conversion because it makes sacramentally present Jesus' call to conversion, the first step in returning to the Father from one who is strayed by sin. So, you remember in Mark chapter 1 here, Jesus said the requirements to get into the kingdom are repent and believe the gospel. The Catholic Church teaches that that is indeed, still today, the first step to get into the kingdom is to repent. And the best way to do that, according to our, to the faith, is through the sacrament of reconciliation. Paragraph 1427 continues the discussion now about reconciliation, but particularly in terms of uh, the baptized people who should be converted a second time by repenting and going to confession. But also that this call, paragraph 1427, is, uh, tells us that the call to enter the kingdom of God is addressed even to those who are not yet Christian. It requires a fundamental conversion. So that is the end of today's episode. All of those catechism paragraphs that I just mentioned, they are in the show notes for you to look at. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please tell other people about it. This show can only grow by you guys, the listeners, telling other people about it. Thanks for your support. Hopefully you'll tune in again tomorrow.